In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we are going to talk about wearing too many layers. Is bushcraft an appropriate hobby for a 12-year-old? What to teach at indoor sessions for young people? Fires in deserts and music for the bush. Welcome, welcome to episode 67 of Ask Paul Kirtley and the observant among you will tell that I am not outdoors today. You can probably hear it on the audio as well if you're just listening on the podcast. I am in my office, in my study, just getting ready for a trip and you can keep an eye out for more on that on my blog and on my YouTube channel in the coming weeks. Uh, I'll give you a clue though. I'll give you a clue. Hold on. Okay. There's the first clue. If you're watching, you're going to see it. If you're listening, you're going to have to find the video. I'm sorry. Okay. So without further ado, let's get on with today's uh, questions. First question is about uh, layers and this is from Ralph and he asks, Hi Mr. Kirtley, I remember Morschansky once claiming that you can overdo layering your clothes by wearing more than five layers for insulative purposes. He sadly failed to explain this phenomenon in detail though. Could you please help me out in this? Many thanks in advance. Warm regards, Ralph. And yes, I know some people pronounce it Kachansky, some people pronounce it Kahansky. Um, and I'm never quite sure. Kahansky probably. But um, I have met Moores, but um, I just called him Moores. I didn't call him Mr. Kahansky. Um, <laughs> the question about layers. I, I don't know exactly what, what Moores is referring to. Um, he may be referring to the fact that it's difficult to manage your temperature if you have too many layers on. Certainly, I know from operating in really cold temperatures, if you get your layering right, um, I can't think I've ever really worn five layers. Um, the most I've ever really worn while moving around is, you know, having a thin merino base layer on, then having a, a thicker, uh, you know, sort of a 200 gram or frotty um, top or something. And I know I can never pronounce that wool power that's why they changed it so that those of us that are not swedish can pronounce it so 200 gram per square meter wool power top um, so i tend to wear a thin icebreaker or similar and then a a wool power 200 gram per square meter on top of that that's what i wear and a lot of the time with a shell over the top if you're operating if you're hauling a sled or digging or chopping that's all you need and then i tend to carry a 400 gram uh, wool power to put over that if it's really really cold um, or if I'm if I'm stationary or just you know sitting around in the tent in the evening if it's not that warm in the tent yet that's something that I wear and take on and off um, I also tend to take a um, mothership jacket which is a big jacket go that goes over the top of anything that I'm wearing at the time so I don't have to take layers off um, and I 
typically just use in the northern forest I typically just use an old Swedish M90 um, mountain parker I think they're called um, but they're longer uh, you can get them for about 25 pounds secondhand and they're um, or surplus and they're excellent um, that was something I learned from from Lars Fault when I worked with him. He always had one of those that he just chucked on over the top for riding a snow machine or just standing around while students were building Quincy's or something and he was directing things. It's just a good thing to throw on over the top and I have one of those. And so that's the most I, you know, I will maybe have five layers on if I had the, the thinnest wool, the 200 and the 400. The 400 would be unusual if I'd been doing anything active. Um, a a a, um, a shell a windproof um, like the sort of thing I was just wearing and then a mothership but that I'm not going to be doing anything with with that on that's a very sort of stationary aspect and yeah if you were trying to operate with all of those layers on that would be too many layers you would get too hot you wouldn't be able to ventilate properly um, you wouldn't be able to regulate your temperature so it's possible that that's what Moores is talking about if you've got your layers right yeah if you've got good quality layers now if I had five layers of cotton on I'd probably be cold but if you've got good layers a good proper layering system you're not going to be wearing all five at the same time under normal circumstances. It is too much. Um, and then the other thing he might be referring to is simply that if the, if the layers are good and they are the right sort of thickness, um, they're going to be restrictive. You know, you, you, you can't move around properly. And that's what you just like the Michelin man. That's another thing. And then the other thing that might be a consideration, and again, this might be what he's referring to. Um, and it's certainly something that you do need to be concerned about is that layers work by air being trapped in them. And if you um, try and put too many things on, you tend to squeeze the air out of them, particularly if the lower layers get squashed. That's why I tend to wear wool lower down. And if I want to chuck something over the top, it tends to be like a, a, a synthetic duvet jacket or a down duvet jacket. But I don't like putting those type of insulative layers and then putting something you know tighter or heavier over the top because you just squash it down. It's like trying to sleep in two sleeping bags. Um, when one doesn't really fit inside the other one very well all that happens is that the loft of one of them gets squashed down and you don't get a huge amount of benefit from it um so that could also be uh the issue that moores is referring to or he could be referring to all of those things because they are all valid considerations that if your layers are good you're going to get too hot with five layers on if your um if your layers are not good um, they might still be restrictive because they're going to be thick um, and that's going to hinder your ability to, to function. And then also putting layers on in, in too great a combination is just going to stop some of them working effectively potentially. So all of those things are valid comments. So hopefully those things are useful to you. I do have some um, articles, not videos, articles on my blog regarding the sort of clothing that I wear in cold conditions in the winter. And I will link to those below this video. 
and also I do aim to try and produce a few more things because my system's changed a little bit over the years. Um, the principles are the same, but I found different garments um, sometimes and I, people get hung up on particular garments rather than trying to learn the principles. The principles are sound in everything that's on my blog the, and, and videos, nothing has changed there, but over time you find a new piece of equipment. That smock I was just wearing was custom made smock that I now use rather than the Nerona jacket that I used to wear, the um, Arctis Aniaka, which is which wore out. Um, it felt, you know, it's pretty much falling into pieces. It's such a good jacket. I wore it so much, um, but I needed to get something new and I got a custom made smock that I use now in the Northern Forest. So things do change over time. Um, but the principles, the layering principles, the clothing principles, the boot principles, the handwear principles, they're all the same. Anyway, let's move on. Is bushcraft an appropriate hobby for a 12 year old? And this is from Derek. And it's a voicemail. Let's see if we can get this to work. Hello, my name is Derek and I just wanted to know, um, do you think that bushcraft is an appropriate hobby for um, a 12 year old? Just wondering. Well, thank you for that, Derek. Thank you for uh, stepping up and asking a question and being brave enough to leave a voicemail as well. Um, a lot of adults won't do that, so well done. Um, yes, um, in short, I think bushcraft is an entirely pro an appropriate uh, hobby or pastime or passion, however far you want to take it for a 12 year old. Um, and as you move into your teenage years, absolutely, I think that's a great time to be learning skills, learning about nature. Um, you're very good at learning when you're at that age. Um, when you're in your teens, um, you're still able to take on board a lot of information quickly. So it's a great time to be developing knowledge and developing skills. Try and get as much experience as you can. Try and read as much as you can on the subject. Read stories of adventurers and stories of exploration. Um, read, read stories of the frontiers. Read some good bushcraft manuals, um, learn some things from, from the internet, of course, please read my blog and find things there and there's, there's other good stuff. Um, do be careful with cutting tools, um, make sure you're being safe. I remember when I was a kid, um, um, from about 10 years old, nine or 10 years old, I had a Swiss army knife and then I had other knives and I have to say, I have the scars to, uh, to prove it. Um, number of bad cuts, mainly on my left hand because I'm right-handed and you end up sticking at places. So do be careful, um, but don't be frightened. Do be careful. There's some good articles um, on my site uh, that uh, have been written by myself and uh, Emma Hampton did a good article as well on knife safety. Um, that's all valid and relevant and you follow those articles if you're not silly with a knife or any other cutting tool you're using you're going to learn how to use it well. Um, and if you can find some people who are um, a bit older uh, that are able to help you as well. That's always good um, for people to show you things. Um, and yeah, learn as much as you can. And if, even if uh, nobody else that you know, even if none of your friends are interested in bushcraft, if nobody at school that you know is particularly interested in 
pushcraft. I remember when I was at school, I was interested. It was more survival skills back in those days. Uh, as you've probably heard me talk about before, uh, my dad bought me Lofty Wiseman's SES Survival Handbook when I was 13 because I was very interested. Like you at that age, I was very, very interested in all of those skills. And my dad bought me that book and I had a couple of friends who were interested in um, those type of activities outdoors, you know, making shelters and dens and, you know, we like knives and, you know, it's just that, that kind of boyhood stuff and we, we played outside. But most of our friends at school thought we were weird, thought we were odd. Um, they all lived more in town. We lived out in a village that was a few miles out of town. Um, out of, it was just a small market town, but even that difference made a difference and they thought we were a bit odd. So, yeah, but um, it, that, that passion has stayed with me through my life. Um, that ex some of those experiences that I had, even at that age, are valuable to me now. You know, 30 odd years later, um, some of the things I learned when I was 12, 13, 14, 15 are still really valuable to me now. And it's started to form a foundation of experience in the outdoors that you can't replicate. You can't replicate it later. You can't suddenly decide you're interested in bushcraft at 45 and have that same level of experience that you have just by regularly going outside since you were 12. You, you just can't. So. Um, Whoever supports you or doesn't support you, I would say it's entirely appropriate. You've got my support and you've got the support of everyone else who reads my blog and listens to my podcasts, I'm sure. So, yes, Derek, it's an entirely appropriate uh, hobby. And you will learn a lot about yourself and you will learn a lot about the real world, nature and what's out there and how you interact with difficulty sometimes as well and that's always that's a life skill it's not just about bushcraft and survival um coming up against frustrations and things that are difficult is is a really good thing for anybody to have experience of good stuff if you've got further questions as well derek as you learn just keep in touch and drop me a line this is from Miles and his question is, hey Paul, I'd like to ask you a question about teaching simple bushcraft and camping skills to children and teenagers, please. I'm based in Leicestershire and I'm a leader with my local boys brigade. We want to introduce our members to basic bushcraft and camping skills. During the winter months, we are limited to the indoors on the night that we meet and can only go camping a few times a year due to time and money. <clears throat> Excuse me. Although in the summer months, it does become easier to go outside more often. The members that we want to teach these skills to are between 10 and 18 years old. Given all of this, how and what should we be teaching them? Thank you for your time. I look forward to hearing your suggestions. Cheers, Miles. Um, well, <clears throat> one thing just to mention while it's still in my mind, recently um, in the comments regarding scouting skills um it was a couple of episodes ago um somebody helpfully made some suggestions about what they teach on indoor sessions and that that could be useful i think that was episode 62 let me just have a quick look i think it was episode 62 
Yes. Uh, somebody had asked a question about the difference was differences between traditional scouting and modern bushcraft, and we talked about uh, woodcraft skills and camping skills and bushcraft skills in the context of scouting. And someone that's under the name of Castle gave an answer about some of the things, the way that he thinks about teaching uh, scouts and, and um, associated you know, beavers and whatnot. So that was um, that, that might be something useful. But I think generally, having had um, some input to various uh, scout groups and you know scout leaders who come on courses or ask me questions in the past i've had similar questions you know there's lots of things that you can do indoors um knots are one of them knots can be a bit dry so trying to give them a bit of context can be helpful but knots are definitely one that can be that can be done um, you can teach about natural navigation and um, in some ways some aspects of teaching about that is easier if you've got a, a, a whiteboard or a, a flip chart or something you can draw pictures on and show and then in the winter if you can take a you know if you haven't got too much light pollution if you can step outside on a clear night if that's possible just outside the building and have a look at the sky um, and that can consolidate what you've been what you've been teaching and and, and talking about um, you can look at maps and understand what maps are telling you in terms of learning navigation so learn to understand what contour lines are and um, you can build models of a map so you, you've got a two-dimensional map you can build using what you've got around you um, you can build three-dimensional models of the landscape and look at scales and all of those sorts of things um, understanding contour lines and scales and direction and grid squares and the national grid system and all of those things could be taught indoors um, you can um, teach people how to pack rucksacks. I remember that was something that I was taught um, by venture. I think some venture scouts um, from our uh, from the scout hut that we operated in. Venture scouts took sessions on how they packed rucksacks for trips they were doing. So they brought their rucksacks in. They brought them in with all of the things that they had. They laid it all out. They explained what the different things were for and why they took them. And then they showed how to pack. You know, including making sure things are waterproof, making sure the rucksacks balance so heavy things weren't further away from the back and all of those sort of good things about packing a rucksack. That can all be done. You can teach people about boot care, foot care. Um, you can teach uh, kids about um, a lot of theory around um, firelighting. Um, I know you can't do it inside, but again, you can teach people um, about the fire triangle and different sizes of fuel. You can even bring those things in. You can say, well, this is fine kindling. This is this, this, and this, and this. Um, you can teach people about knife safety. Um, there's lots of things that you can do inside if you've got a kind of village hall, scout hut type um, building where uh, you know, you're, you're, you're forced to be inside in the winter months because of um, where you are or because of the lack of light. But there's, there's lots and lots and lots of things that you can, that you can do, including um, all of those. And I'm sure some other things will come to mind afterwards. But um, yeah, and then also if you are going camping um, in the summer, get them involved in, in maybe planning some activities that you're going to do while you're there. They could be planning menus, um, they could be planning um, what they're going to need in terms of uh, resources that they're going to have to source when they're there. Um, they could plan how to organize the camp, they could even draw like little um, 
schematics of how they're going to organize things you know in, in ideally uh, you know where's the kitchen going to be relative to where they're going to be camping and you know all of those sorts of things they can think about th that sort of situational awareness so that when they get to the get to the site they've got an idea about how they how they're going to group things um, now of course you can have some oversight of that and that might be something that you've directed them in in the past but if you get them involved um, they're going to they're going to enjoy that they're going to enjoy looking forward to going and also they're going to be more engaged with what's going on on the ground as well so there's lots of ways you know just the sort of things that you know i'm about to go on a trip you know with a couple of colleagues who are also good friends of mine and we've been planning we've been looking at maps we've been looking at um equipment we've been discussing what we're going to take how we're going to pack it um what we're going to need how we're going to sort the food out why not involve the young people in that as well if you if you're making trips it's the same it's the same thing and and if people have never been camping before it's as big as going on a bigger trip when you're older and more experienced so i would get them involved in that type of thing as well you know menu planning how much food do you need? Why do you need different types of food? Um, hygiene, water purification, all of those things can be gone over. Um, in theory, you can even bring jerry cans in, you can bring water filters in, you can bring um, millbank bags in or brown bags to show them at least. You might not be able to get them wet and you know have water flowing around in, in your building and in the in the in the room but you can show them different bits and pieces so you can you can talk them through and then when you're outside you can layer on another layer of practicality um, there's, there's lots and lots of stuff you could do hopefully that gives you some ideas and if anybody else has got some ideas you know because i'm not a scout leader um but there are plenty of people who follow this um video and audio series and my blog in general who are and if they would like to leave any suggestions as to what they do with their um scout troops in the winter months um in the dark days when they can't get outside um please feel free to let rip in the comments below this on my blog or below this on youtube as well for that matter i think it's easier for people to to read through on my blog but feel free whatever you find easiest all right next question just in the interest of time i need to keep going this is a question from Twitter. Uh, Mitchell Green asks, uh, what tips do you have for camping in the deserts in regards to fires as the largest fuel is twigs? Um, well, so we're working on the assumption that the largest fuel you've got is twigs. Well, you have to work on the basis of that assumption. You can't magic larger fuel. Um, and you just have to work within the realms of the possibilities of what you've got available to you where you are it's the same wherever you go um, whether it's cold or hot um, now the thing about deserts is they can be quite cold at night and that's maybe why you want to have a fire in which case if you don't have the right sort of fuel to keep you warm overnight in a a cold overnight desert situation you have to make sure you've got the sleeping kit with you that's going to keep you warm overnight um, and also uh, you need to think about considerations as to you know uh, should you be sleeping on the ground are there scorpions are there snakes are there other things that you don't want to be on the ground with depending on whereabouts in the world you are because there are you know varied deserts in different parts of the world um, on every continent pretty much so um that's one thing it's like well if if you if you 
going to have to not rely on fire to stay warm. You're going to need the equipment to stay warm. Um, that's just reality. And then in terms of cooking, um, I think you can get quite a lot done even with small sticks um, if all you've got are twigs. If you look at desert peoples, and this is where I would be looking, um, for example, the Bedouin um, in the Sinai, they managed to do an awful lot with very efficient use of fire, whether it's making tea, whether it's making bread in the embers. Um, quick, hot fires, very efficient, and you could look very much into the skill set that they have. Similarly, desert peoples of the southern United States have similar skill sets in terms of making use of limited resources. Um, you know, have a look in things like Larry Dean Olson's um, book, Outdoor Survival Skills, because um, again, that's focused on that part of the world um, and see what you can do with those um, skills in the environment that you're thinking of. Um, I think you have to look to the indigenous skills um, because those people have already worked through that problem already, um, but you also have the benefit of being a modern human in the 21st century that you've got access to lightweight equipment that even if your skills or your local knowledge are not up to it, you can make up for it with the equipment until your skills and knowledge are up to it. That, that would be my suggestion. And have a listen to um, the podcast interview that I've done with uh, Leon McCarran in episode 29 of my podcast. Yeah, episode 29. Have a listen because he just did a thousand mile walk through down through the West Bank, Jordan, into the Sinai. And there are some comments there that are probably useful to you as well. All right, last question. Sorry, that's all gone weird and squashed up. Uh, Gary, this is from Gary Crossan. Gary asks me, and he isn't the only person to ever have asked me this. It's kind of a, you know, take it as a as a multi multi part joint question from a number of people. Um, this question is, hi Paul, great channel. Thanks for sharing your knowledge with us. Anyway, this may sound like an uncommon question. It, it isn't. You're not the only person who's asked me, Gary. Um, but what sort of music do you listen to heading off into the bush? Um, well, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Um, I have quite diverse music tastes. Um, everything from sort of quite ethereal, ephemeral, electronic music through indie, through some aspects of pop, uh, through heavy rock and metal and all sorts of stuff I like. Um, I'm not a jazz as well. Um, I'm not uh, I'm not a huge classical fan, although I do, you know, there's a lot of things that are familiar, you know, like Vivaldi and Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms and Wagner and, you know, all that kind of stuff that's, you know, you hear in a lot of places. A lot of that I, I like. I don't tend to listen to it a lot at home. Um, or on the move, but you know I have a few bits and pieces in my in my collection. But I generally tend to listen to more to more modern music. Um, what I listen to, I don't tend to. So why I'm sort of talking around this is I don't tend to listen to a lot of music while I'm out. 
Um, so, you know, even when I'm working courses, which is in some ways different to if I'm making a trip myself. Um, so if I'm running a course where I'm teaching people, I'll tend to read a little bit at the end of the day. You know, I'll go back to my tarp or my tent or TP or whatever I'm using and I'll just relax. I'll get into my sleeping bag and I'll just read for a bit until I'm feeling drowsy. That, that tends to be my way of, of switching off. Um, I don't really like, like I, I like hearing the sounds around me while I'm out. I don't like putting music on. I don't like having uh, a radio or music playing in camp. I know some people like that. I really don't like it. Um, that's just, I'm not saying other people shouldn't like it, but personally, um, not that I have a problem with music. Generally, I listen to music all the time. Um, when I'm working on my computer and writing, I actually like to listen to music. I like to listen to music while I'm writing. It has to be a certain type of music. But if you read anything on my blog, um, I might have written some notes while I'm out in the field, but when I'm writing it into, up into an article, I'll tend to have some music on, headphones, um, sometimes uh, on speakers in the house. Um, and that just helps me focus on what I'm doing, but it needs to be kind of often without vocals, um, often uh, something that's relatively... Uh, unintrusive if you like it you know not something that's going to cut across my um, attention but something that's more going to focus my attention um, so that's that's when I listen so related to what I do I listen to music a lot then I also listen to music when I'm traveling so if I'm doing an overseas trip for example I will listen to music on the plane I don't really like watching movies on planes um, I don't like watching things on really small screens um, I, I find that quite uh, uh, unengaging somehow I, I just find it too small um, I can't watch movies on my phone, for example. I, I don't watch them even on, on a tablet. I like to watch stuff on a big screen where I guess most movies were meant to be shown on big screens, weren't they, in a cinema or a big television. Um, so I don't tend to watch movies. So I will listen to music. Um, I'll listen to music um, on, a on a long plane journey. I'll listen to music and I'll listen to podcasts and I'll read a bit. And it's the same, you know, often when you're doing overseas trips and you're having to, you know, you're having to get to an airport and then you have to get from an airport from a big town to a small town that might involve a long uh, road journey or a rail journey. Again, having some music for that is is good. And I, I, I enjoy listening to whatever takes my fancy at the time um, while I'm on a train or while I'm on a, a bus or in the back of a um, mini van or what have you when we're going to out to a canoe outfitters or something um, but once I'm actually out in the bush I don't I don't really listen to anything I don't listen to podcasts really um, I tend to listen to podcasts when I'm again driving um, on journeys getting to somewhere but not when I'm actually there I like to listen to what's going on around me um, and even even on a you know multi-week trip where you know you're going back to the tent or the tarp every evening you've got some time to yourself i don't tend to even though i might have music on my phone or i might um happen to have my i used to travel with an ipod quite a lot and then 
you know, you've got it for the plane, you've got it for the bus journey, you've got it with you anyway. I don't tend to listen to stuff in the tent. Again, I, I prefer to read and become drowsy that way and then fall asleep. And that, that tends to be my routine. So um, that doesn't really answer your question in a way um, because I don't really listen to music. I tell you, the other thing that's interesting is um, when, I, when I'm on a journey, and it's more the case when I'm walking and cross-country skiing, less so when I'm paddling, but sometimes when I'm paddling, if we're paddling on something that's fairly flat and fairly, you know, across a lake that's not too windy or choppy or doesn't require a huge amount of concentration, you just get into a rhythm um, with the paddling, I tend to find I get certain songs and it's never the same one twice usually it's just it might be something I was listening to on the way there it might be something I was listening to the previous week it might be something that I was listening to I haven't listened to for months if not years but something will come into my head and then that song tends to stick in my head for a little while and you know when I'm walking that tends to be you know just going around in my head or when I'm paddling or when I'm skiing or what have you and so I guess I do listen to music in that sense but it's it's internally generated you know it's a recording in my head of part of a song or a chorus or or something so that that is a way that music I guess infiltrates um, my trips more than actually putting earphones in and listening to something so just insight into my into my uh, brain <laughs> there or maybe not at all um, and that brings us to the end of this session Aspel Kirtley 67 a bit different um, I haven't done one from my uh, study for a long time um, and I know last time people were like oh you're not outside you're not a real outdoors person well those of us that make big trips need time to plan things uh, we need time to write things up from previous trips and sometimes we are in between trips we're in between courses or trips with clients or personal trips um, we do spend some time inside and that's necessary you you've got to like this put this trip we've just we're just about to embark on it requires some planning it requires some preparation it requires everything to be packed and prepared properly and uh what I've decided is that even if I am doing that type of thing, I'm going to sit down and record an episode of Ask Paul Kirtley because I want to get these out on a regular basis. Um, it was always my intention to get them out on a regular basis, but, you know, life happens. And um, I really made a resolution this year in 2018 to get them out on a regular basis, even if that means um, I'm recording them in a slightly unfamiliar territory or um, if I have to record a couple at the same time so that I can space them out so that you can get one every week. It, I would really love to get to the end of 2018 with pretty much without fail, you've had an episode of this um, every week um, because then uh, you're getting value from this process. The questions are coming in. I just need to find the, the, the space to, to produce these. So. Hopefully you don't mind too much that this one is from my uh, little office space. Um, I know some of you like listening to uh, 
the the bird song and the babbling brook or what wherever it is that I am for a particular episode or enjoy me seeing buzzards and kestrels and sometimes we get deer wandering past in the background or rabbits running around um, none of that this time but um, hopefully that was still useful to you I really appreciate your attention let me know your thoughts uh, on anything that we've talked about today in the comments below this links to anything that I said I'd link to will be below the videos whether the video is on YouTube or whether the video is on my blog and as always this is available as an audio podcast on all the major podcast platforms including iTunes, Apple Podcasting app, uh, Stitcher, Player FM, it's also put onto SoundCloud. Um, please subscribe on your favourite platform. Um, even if you don't listen to podcasts a lot, if you could just choose one and subscribe, that helps me because it makes it uh, more visible to people who do listen to podcasts uh, and it puts this in front of people who would generally like it because those systems see oh they listen to this that person listens to this as well so this person will probably like that so it's useful to get this up the rankings as it were so that people who would benefit from it and also the other thing you can do is just share this episode wherever you see it whether it's a link to soundcloud it's a link to the podcast it's a link to a video or my blog just share that on with your network because your friends often like the same sort of things as you do at least some of them do and um, that would be appreciated if you could share it with them because that helps me helps me get good questions that i can answer for everyone it helps um, the popularity of the show which helps the visibility of the show which helps me as well helps me keep it free actually and so anyway um, enough rambling on about that i'm going to get on with my day i'll let you get on with yours but i really appreciate you watching and listening and i will see you on the next episode of Aspore Kirtley, and that might be from a more interesting natural environment than uh, my office. Keep your eyes peeled. Cheers. <laughs>